But let's return to the great love song of the Scriptures. The song of songs. The song of songs. You know, what, what are most songs written about in some way, shape, or form? Uh, they're written about love, the power, motivation uh, of love. And uh, that's something that we certainly didn't come up with on our own uh, as human beings. Uh, but we are copycats of our God, of our Maker. We're actually living into our design uh, as human beings when we uh, desire and express love for one another. So God gives us this entire section of poetry uh, on love, specifically the love and attraction uh, between a man and woman. It shows us all within the family of God um, what he has made so very good between a man and woman uh, and what this is designed to show us and to show a watching world of his goodness, uh, of his faithfulness. Uh, to us. So we'll be looking at a larger section again this morning, uh, 6 verse 4 all the way through 8 verse 5, reading uh, various sections. But we're going to start here with the shepherd admiring and praising his bride in 6 verse 4, where he says, You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. And we'll stop there for a moment as we consider the admiration of this shepherd. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you, our covenant God, for your wisdom, your goodness. You are the source of all that is true, all that is beautiful. You are showing us through your word, your passionate love. So Lord, I pray that you would work the soil of our hearts even now to be receptive to this word. Uh, teach us, show us our need for you. Show us how to love you and to serve you and to serve one another in relationships. Uh, Lord, we need this word. Uh, for we are prone to wander prone to leave you, the God that we love, and to leave your desire for our desires. Shape us, conform us through this word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in August 2004, uh, Hurricane Ch uh, Charlie was bearing down on the, the coast of Florida. Maybe you remember that from many years ago. And there was an, an oceanographer biologist who had placed a bunch of microphones at the bottom of a harbor. It was Charlotte Harbor, just north of Fort Myers. And he heard a language that he couldn't, couldn't understand, but he was convinced was singing from these uh, microphones. Just by, by the sound of the voices, the inflection of the voices, you know, it sounded like there was a question being asked and then there was a response to the question and then this whole chorus of singing in response. 
Um, and as it turns out, through a little bit more research and time, this chorus was coming from a gathering of sand sea trout who were at about 15 feet below the surface of uh, Charlotte Bay there in Florida. So while, you know, the, while the waves are turning, while they are thrashing the land, uh, here is this chorus of trout going about their happy nightly mating song. Um, love is in the air, or love is in the water at that point in time. Um, all for all this, these uh, biologists to hear. So I, th- I think the microphones have been planted and we're, we're listening in, as it were, not to a school of fish, but between two people. Two image bearers of God who are intoxicated by desire. They just, they long for their attraction and desire to find its fulfillment in marital bliss. To awaken and enjoy this love at the proper time and the proper place. And uh, some would claim that the woman continues to dream here through chapter 6, and that's possible. Uh, I I think we can say this is real life, if not daydreaming and fantasizing in real life of the sexual consummation that these uh, lovers long for. But they're entirely willing, entirely willing, entirely ready uh, to give themselves unashamedly uh, to each other as husband and wife. So we're going to ask a few questions of this love poetry. That's how I've chosen to approach uh, the series in the song. What, what is real about this relationship? What do we see that may be ideal that we can take from this? Then what does it tell us about our own relationships in marriage and out of marriage? And then finally, what does it tell us about our God uh, and His love for us in Jesus Christ? Um, and it has to take us there. It propels It propels our hearts to a greater love. No human marriage, even as blissful and as wonderful as it is portrayed, can ever satisfy. Married love is not the ultimate point, but the pointer to the steadfast love and commitment of our God. And so we find answers, maybe not exhaustively, but we find answers uh, to these questions uh, before us. So the woman of the song is dreaming or coming out of a dream and she's hearing the voice of her beloved, the voice of her man who is admiring her, praising her up and down. And if you remember from, uh, see it was a couple weeks ago when we were in uh, the song, there were some scary things that were a part of her dreams. She had missed opportunities for intimacy. She had been searching. She was was even abused by others in this search for the one that she loves. And that that gave us some window into reality of relationships. But she's she's hoping maybe that real life will end in the way that her dream ends. Sexual consummation, delight with her new husband. But since we last looked at this song, it, it also raised a question for me. So I was thinking about dreaming and some of the the weirdness of dreams and what goes on in dreams. Um, Maybe you've thought about this somewhere along the line. Can we sin against God in our dreams? Um, In that unconscious state, can we be sinning in what our, our minds are playing out? And again, that, that's, not where we're gonna, that's not where we're going today. But if we believe that sin is as 
deep and pervasive as to affect the chemical makeup of our brains. And we go back to the total depravity. Then we can confess, I think we really can, confess before God the distortion and vulgarity of our dreams. What we might remember from dreaming, what we don't remember, it's good, it's appropriate to ask the Lord to renew us for a right spirit, for a sweet rest that gives Him glory when we are awake and when we are sleeping. So just something to think about as we observe this this poetic uh, dreaming of this woman. Now she comes out of that. I remember one dream I had this last week. Uh, I was looking, it was was in the house, I was looking outside and there were these uh, bear cubs in the front of our yard. And it was this place actually on Forest Scott Cove over here in Jacksonville. And the bear cubs are going, I'm going to go outside and take a picture of these bear cubs. And I go around the corner of the house and there's Mama Bear uh, right by this bush. And she rears up, ready to tear me apart. So I run back in the house, slam the door, and she's coming to the front door, tearing down the door. And so I'm, I'm grabbing all the, the family members. We get in the van. We back out into the cul-de-sac in my dream. And, there, and she has gotten into the house and she's just ransacking the house while we're sitting in the van watching this transpire. So when I woke up, I was very grateful and relieved to find that the door was intact, that there were no bear claws, um, no signs of this savage bear. So when this woman wakes up, she, she hears the voice of her beloved. Is this dream over? Is this real? Does he still desire me and want to be with me and enjoy me in marriage? And so the language of, of 6, 11, and 12 seems to hint at this questioning. I went down to uh, the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. See that questioning? Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. So it's still, is it still springtime for their love? What will she find when she goes to the vineyard? Uh, well, she is enraptured and she, she sees herself being carried away by the words of her prince. Again, we may have some more imaginative transformation here in verse 12. Drifting off with these words of love. She is this man's closest companion. The favored uh, daughter of the one who bore her. And the man also acknowledges what others see in her in verse 9, which sounds a lot like the language uh, when we read, the young woman saw her, called her blessed, queens and concubines also, and they praised her. If that sounds somewhat familiar, it should resonate with Proverbs 31, where the children bless their mother and the husband praises her. Her beauty goes well beyond what is on the surface. So the shepherd and those in the community call her back to this reality that she is loved. She is desirable. She's the only one for Him. Hear that language in verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. And Shulamite's not her name there. Uh, That's actually a title taken from the word shalom. Peace perfection, wholeness, flourishing. She is the complete 
package the perfect one for her. So this is the shepherd's Jerry Maguire moment in 613. All right? Oh, return, O Shulamite. You complete me. Much more poetic than Jerry Maguire. Then we move into chapter 7, and the language becomes more impassioned. Uh, Instead of from top to bottom, as we've read before, now the young shepherd uh, works his way from her feet to her hair. He cannot resist her stunning beauty. And now keep in mind, this is not 2021 uh, American ideas of a beautiful physique. What's considered beautiful is very culturally conditioned, changes over time. But he wants to enjoy what it is he's seeing. He wants to follow this arousal to its desired climax. We get this change in imagery uh, there from uh, chapter 7, 7 through 10. It makes it very clear. Verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And she responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. So she, she is ready for him to enjoy uh, the fruits of their passion. Now it can finally be unleashed um, in this wedded bliss. I think how she is she is delighting in the reality that he desires her sexually. Um, and that is, that's a beautiful thing. That is, that is restoration. That is rightly ordered desire that she has here. If we think back in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3.16, we know the ugliness that happens in Genesis chapter 3 is a result of God's curse on human disobedience. And a result of this is that a woman's desire, and this is true for men and women, twisted desires, but uniquely, a woman's desire would be twisted, a desire to lord over her husband, to free herself from any sense of his authority, headship. But look at the corrective of the song. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I mean, here's that sweet spot of submission and desire. Her husband adores her, all of her. So she feels safe, she feels provided for. And, and I think I'm, I'm in safe, safe ground here. See, when, when a married woman is in that place and her desire is not then for or against her husband, but in sweet submission to him. I want you to hold on to that. Hold on to the ideal church It's beautiful. We may not see it very often. But we get to see it here in God's Word. In my own reading of this song, it's my own position has shifted a little bit even since I started uh, reading this many weeks ago. I was fairly convinced that uh, sexual consummation for this couple really didn't occur until chapter 8. Uh, after he warns, or after she warns her closest friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, not to rush into this, not to awaken love until it pleases, and then she awakens love in 8 verse 5. It's possible, very possible to read it that way. But I am more inclined now to view their sexual union, what we've read in chapter 7. And then the verses that follow are this sort of reminiscing and enjoying their married love in new ways. 
in 713. It says, The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So their, their romance here isn't just this you know, routine thing. There's new enjoyments along the way. How they've learned to, to please each other in this dance of love. And that, that fruit language that we hear in, in 7, 12 through 13, awakening love under the apple tree in 8 verse 5, all undertones here of fertility and childbearing. They are enjoying each other and they may enjoy the fruit of their union in the days to come. So let's think about this now for our own relationships. A number of things to consider here. And I think the first is somewhat obvious, but all this language of body and the desire for the body reminds us that we have been made body and soul. We have been redeemed body and soul. We are known body and soul. Great English expositor, Matthew Henry. Maybe you've heard of him in the late 17th century. Commentaries are very uh, widely recognized. But when reading this song as allegory, he made this comment, we must forget that we have bodies. Um, I don't think that approach is very helpful. I don't think that's why it's here. God does not forget that we have bodies and desires that he gives to those bodies. You see, the, the creator got us not embarrassed by the subject matter that's on our minds right now and that we find here in this song. This sexual desire and fulfillment is mar- It's not presented as... Maybe we're used to seeing it in somewhat crude or pornographic ways. It is beautiful poetry. And I think that's important for us to consider even in how we think and talk about this subject matter. We talk about our bodies and desires within the church. I hope it encourages us to guard against any sort of uh, Gnostic view that considers the body as somehow can be ignored, not as important. Um, you, can, you can do whatever you want with your body as long as you know, the Spirit has the attention. Um, there is beauty in every body that God has made. Um, beauty in every body. God has knit us together in our mother's wombs. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he goes on to say, we know that full well. Is that true of you? Do you know that? That everybody is beautiful. Again, it's cultural conditioning that tells us what is beautiful on the outside. Any deviation from that is considered less desirable. So as Christians, though, though we live in this time and place, this culture, we need to allow God's word, these words and this love poetry to shape us and condition us as to what is beautiful. Beauty is not just what we see. It's bound to the soul of a person. I think I've mentioned this before, but as we, as we delight in inner beauty, we are more attracted, more disposed to the beauty of that whole person. Younger, older, skinnier, heavier, Lots of hair, no hair. Um, appreciate how Dan Allender uh, comments on this. He says, We must grow in our ability to see the body as a reflection of the glory of the unseen. Grow in our ability 
We are body and soul, meant to grow together as body and soul. Okay, and that's not easy. Let's just, let's just admit that. It's not easy. It's quite difficult. There are challenges. There are uncertainties that accompany this. Fear, even conflict in relationship, outside of marriage, inside of marriage. I mean, there's still some uncertainty conveyed by this woman in chapter 6. She needs to be affirmed and assured that this man truly does love her. So a healthy relationship then does not mean that there's no conflict. It does not mean that there's no times of, of uncertainty or confusion. I'd be a lot more concerned if that wasn't there at all. Where's the honesty in that? A healthy relationship is able to, to work through conflict to a place of resolution, and that may be very, very hard. That will take tremendous commitment and sacrifice. So I hope we're hearing how important the marriage covenant is when this is true. When this commitment has been made, then it provides the, the safest and healthiest context for working through conflict. And most often when that conflict then is worked through, the couple is at a, at a healthier place, a stronger bond in their relationship than they were before. Outside that lifelong commitment of marriage and there's disagreement, there's distrust, there's conflict, what happens? Peace. I'm out. Time to move on. And all the devastation that follows, not just for this couple, but for families, for communities. This intimacy, marital union is not done in a vacuum. We've picked that up through this song. Your marriage, if that describes you, affects a whole lot more people than just the two of you. As a single person, your relationships and the pursuit of relationships affects a whole lot more people than just you. So in our relationships, whether we're working through confusion, conflict, or not, there must be this encouragement, uh, words of affirmation and praise. I think Dr. Gary Chapman would say that's one of those love languages. Uh, but I think it's something we all need in relationships. And this should be modeled from a husband to a wife, and a wife to her husband, praising each other, reminding each other how important and special they are to the other. So when, when we're in, in marriage, and as a marriage continues and, and matures, the beauty that, that you see in one another goes deep. Right? Physical appearance will change. We know this. But guys who are married, she's still your Shulamite. After five years, 15 years, 25 years, 50 years, she's still the one who completes you in this marital union. And she needs to hear it often so please don't stop sharing how important you are to each other one of the most powerful and important ways we do that is through covenant renewal ceremonies which we see poetically displayed here a couple takes delight in their sexual union in marriage they look forward to this unashamed nakedness now church family i want us to understand here again how because sexual desire is so powerful and consummation, such an intimate experience, body and soul, when it is misused and abused, it leaves scars. 
it will leave scars. In the heinousness of sin, it may leave physical scars, but almost certainly it will leave emotional, mental scars. It's powerful. There may be few people in this room who have not been scarred in some way by what you've seen, heard, or experienced in connection with sexual desire or its fulfillment in some way. So I wanted to acknowledge that even as we gaze upon God's design for sexual fulfillment. Sex is enjoyable. It's intended to be pleasurable between a husband and wife, whether that union produces children or not. And that's important for us to understand. I think the church has often in the past assumed this position that, uh, that sexual union in marriage really is to make more babies. That's the goal. God says be fruitful and multiply in numbers. So have, have lots of babies. And there's really very little talk about the enjoyment of the sexual union itself. And I think we do a great disservice to families within the church in the long run if we assume that position. Because then those looking ahead towards marriage are sort of left to figure it out on their own. Well, guess what? They're figuring it out. Where are they learning that from? Because they're learning it. They're being taught how a husband gives pleasure to his wife, how a wife pleasures her husband. Where is the church in these conversations? Do we consider those conversations important enough to have within our families? Have we talked about this subject enough and wisely so that our children, follow-up generations, feel safe and comfortable in asking the questions because they're finding the answers. Another thing that this uh, emphasis on the church, where the church has emphasized, um, subtly or not so subtly, is to convey that a marriage that does not produce children is somehow a subpar or failed marriage. And children are often the result of sexual Union, by design. But children do not define an appropriate or healthy marriage. They don't. A marriage must be open to pregnancy, having children. It must be so. That's God's design and command. But it also must be open to a loving and committed relationship when there is no children. So the language of this song, it just shows us a wonderful balance here. A balance between the pleasure and the possibility of children, this one flesh, a union of marriage. What does this tell us about our God? So we read this language of, of two becoming one flesh. Back in Genesis 2.24, the man and the woman are to, to hold fast to each other. Exclusive loyalty between this man and woman. There's a jealousy that allows delight to flourish. And that is true of God's relationship to us. As his people. It's true as we read in Exodus chapter 20 and God's commitment and loyalty. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the foundation of love that provides these covenant obligations of love. Hosea 11. Listen to how the Lord speaks of his love through the prophet. I can, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? 
How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is the heart of God for his people, for us. It is the deep commitment of God, the loyalty of God that makes our union with him a pleasure. It makes our obedience to him a delight. So marital union, that's a picture of this. It points that greater love and goodness of God. It's fascinating. We read in John 3.16, you know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When, When this song of songs is translated into the Greek, which we know of as the Septuagint, the Greek word for love in John 3.16, that's what's used often to describe the love between this man and woman. God has an affection, a desire for his people that has moved him to redeem. He desires a relationship with us. He's the only one that makes that relationship possible through the Lord Jesus. And that, that too will bear the marks of a real relationship, a true and genuine relationship. And it, it's sort of interesting. It's also quite saddening. Um, you know, we're okay with a relationship with God as long as it's nice and smooth sailing and things are simple and easy. As long as there's no confusion, no challenge, no conflict in that relationship. That, that's typically our style. That is not God's desire. For you, for me, for his bride. His desire is, is for a deeper, stronger, more mature relationship with us. So he's not creating confusion or conflict just for the sake of, of doing that. But he may allow great adversity in our lives difficulties along the way to pull us close to deepen our dependence upon him greater fulfillment greater comfort that we find in this garden of love so the shepherd of the song here he calls the woman to return to come back under the shade of his love do you hear the shepherd calling you to return this morning beckoning you. Isaiah 30, we hear, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. When we return to God, when we come back from our idolatry and sin, what do we hear? What do we hear Him saying? Come to me, all you who labor, who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Let me sing for my beloved a love song, prophet Isaiah. So we hear words of affirmation. We hear words of security. We hear how beautiful we are in union with Jesus. And so the pleasure of sexual union in marriage, in all of its wonder and mystery, that's still not enough. We long for a greater husband, a a more faithful shepherd. And we, we find in the gospel a love that just does not let us go. The Lord Jesus, think about this, the Lord Jesus will spend forever admiring his bride, lavishing her. Absolute awe of her beauty, 
beauty that he has created in her, in us. That's the heart of Jesus. It was for his joy to live in perfect obedience, for his joy to die for us. It was for his joy to give us the kingdom of God, and his joy will be in our joy when we hear, oh, beloved, how beautiful you are. Let's pray together. Lord, these are words that we long to hear, that you have lisped to us through your word. Oh, for our faith to be made sight. We hear this word from you, our beloved Savior. Lord, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We thank you, our true and greater husband, who cares for us, protects us, provides for us. Lord, it is... It is in this context that we are open, ready, willing to submit, joyful submission to you and to your desire for us. Lord, you've given us a picture. May we use it faithfully as we consider your great love for us this day and always. In Jesus' name, amen.